this set of stories and they're just individual events. Um, but we're asking, what does that mean for us here today? And I want to talk about secularism. Uh, secularism is just that notion that you don't really need God, that uh, the world and, and our lives can work without God. And most people will tell you that secularism is winning in our society. So that's the story told in our media. That's a story that many, of us, uh, many Christians will tell each other. It goes something like this. Um, in the past, everyone believed in God, uh, but ever since the Enlightenment, ever since it became more reasonable, when we discovered that science has all these answers to problems, people realised they don't need religion anymore. Just look at the statistics, we're told. No religion was the highest percentage of responses on the 2016 census. Uh, yes, got the majority in the marriage plebiscite. Fewer and fewer parents said their kids to RI at school. Secularism is on the rise, we're told. It's just a matter of time before Christianity is extinct and secularism wins. Well, Saul's kingdom was on the rise. He had the looks, his head and shoulders above everyone else. He's winning battles. He's driving back the Philistines. Uh, he's pretty much wiped out the Amalekites. He may have been a nobody. He may have been a bit timid, but surely Saul is on the rise. But chapters 19 and 20 tell us, no, Saul can't win. Despite holding all the cars, despite being the man of the hour, Saul won't win because God's chosen his king David and nothing can stop David. So in these chapters, um, Saul's kingdom just falls apart. It falls apart from the inside out. Uh, it's the way that it plays. Um, and we see Saul become more and more desperate. So here's what we're going to do. We've got four scenes. We've got Saul's son placating him, Saul's daughter betraying him, God opposing Saul, and then Saul's heir abdicates. We're going to see how Saul can't win and we're going to see that neither can secularism. So how about I pray and we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, please help us to see from this passage the encouragement that your king does win and that anything that stands opposed to us ultimately will fall apart. pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so last week was when we realised that Saul realised that David was a threat. Uh, he killed the giant, and from that point on, Saul was less popular than David. David was the man who people loved. But we also saw that Saul had a plan. Um, he managed to recruit David into his army, and then he married David into his family. They have an old saying, don't they? Keep your friends close and your enemies closer. That's Saul's strategy. Um, he's kept David really close. But as we enter chapter 19, we realise that didn't work. So first of all, Saul's son placates him. So the chapter opens, Saul's abandoned subtlety. He just gives a direct command to his soldiers, especially to his son, kill David. That's verse 1. Uh, but Jonathan talks him out of it. He, he convinced him in verse 4 that surely David is good for Saul. Verse 4, Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul his father and said to him, let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you, and what he has done has benefited you greatly. Jonathan placates Saul. Then, in verse 8, Saul's daughter betrays him. 
So the moment David wins another battle, Saul's paranoia returns, the evil spirit comes back. And so as David, like usual, is playing calming music, Saul tries to kill him. David runs, but notice who protects him. Notice who the main actor is. It's Michal, David's wife, Saul's daughter. She's the one who's warning David. She's the one with a plan for David's escape. She deceives her father to protect David. Have a look at verse 11. Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and to kill him in the morning, but Michal, daughter's wife, warned him, if you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. And so Michal let David down through a window and he fled and escaped. And then Michal took the, an idol and laid it on the bed, covering it with a garment and putting some goat's hair at the head. And that little scene there is actually a really good throwback to Genesis. I don't know if you remember the story, but um, Rachel was the daughter of Laban, but she married Jacob. And for a while, Jacob was working as Laban's hired man, and they were all getting on pretty well. And then Laban decided that he needed to leave, and he needed to leave in a hurry, and he ran away. Rachel takes away the family idol, and when Laban comes chasing after her, she just lies to her father. And suddenly you have this moment where you realize that she is no longer aligned with her dad. She's now aligned with the man that God's chosen, with Jacob. Well, that's Michal here. She is no longer aligned with her father, the, the, the ruling king. She's going with the man that God's chosen, David. Listen to verse 17. She's just willing to straight-face lie to her father. Verse 17. Saul said to Michal, Why did you deceive me like this and send my enemy away so that he escaped? Michal told him, He, David, said to me, Let me get away. Why should I kill you? That's not what happened. Michal has made her choice she, she she's come to this crisis point and she has to choose between god's cho- chosen king or her father now my mum taught me family comes first she, she always used to say you know uh, friends come and go but family will be there for life and that's true but it's good to be reminded there is something more ultimate more important than family So these are the words that Jesus said during his ministry, Matthew 10. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I do not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against his mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. The situation with Saul and Michal, it's not just an Old Testament thing. This This is the difficult decision This is the the hard priority that many Christians face. It's not that you choose to oppose your family. But if they choose to reject God's King Jesus, sometimes you get caught in the crossfire. And Jesus says it's hard. Jesus recognises this is really hard. He actually compares it to the cross. If we keep reading in Matthew, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Michal's decision is a difficult one, but it's the right one. God cho- she chooses God's king over family. No wonder Saul can't win. 
So he's, he set himself against God, and as a result, he's also fighting his own family. But it gets worse than that. Because Saul's fighting God himself. Uh, we're up to our third scene. And verse 18, David runs off to Samuel in Ramah. Saul hears, he sends soldiers. But the moment the soldiers see Samuel, God's spirit supernaturally intervenes and they change teams. And it happens a second time and a third time. Saul's losing more and more men. So eventually Saul goes himself but even he is powerless. powerless. He's, he's left naked and exposed. Verse 22. Finally, Saul himself left for Ramah and went to this great cistern at Siku, and he asked, where are Samuel and David? Over in Naoth at Ramah, they said. So Saul went to Naoth at Ramah, but the Spirit of God came even on him. And he walked along prophesying until he came to Naoth. He stripped off his garments, and he too prophesied in Samuel's presence. He lay naked all that day and all that night. And this is why people say, is Saul also among the prophets? Saul just doesn't stand a chance. He's fighting the living God, the God who overrules hearts, the God who works our decisions to his ends. It it, it happens again and again in the Bible. So you get the story of Joseph. And Joseph, um, his brothers sell him into slavery. Years later, Joseph becomes the ruler of Egypt and he says to his brothers, Uh, You meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. Uh, You see it in the cross. The Jewish rulers want Jesus dead. Pilate abdicates his responsibility. He lets Jesus go to the cross. People do evil. But through that evil, God does good. He, He defeats sin. He crushes death. God took the greatest evil, the greatest evil, and worked the greatest good from it. Friends, I hope you're not fighting God because you can't win. I have friends who have told me that they'll never follow Jesus, even if they were presented with all the evidence for God's existence. They just don't want to follow Jesus. They love their independence too much or there's something in life that they just wouldn't be willing to give up. If that's you, can I warn you, you can't win. Satan, the most evil power in the universe, tried to oppose Jesus and all his plans just turned on their head. He failed. You can't fight God. He will win. But but it gets worse because fighting God will leave you desperate. That's our fourth scene. Um, Saul's heir abdicates. This is chapter 20. And what we see is that everything just unravels for Saul. So Jonathan starts out, he's convinced of Saul's integrity. Dad swore that David would be safe. And so despite David's report, he he just struggles to believe otherwise. Verse 2, never, Jonathan replied, you are not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything, great or small, without letting me know. Why would he hide this from me? It isn't so. He doesn't want to believe that his dad is trying to kill David. But he also knows that if push comes to shove, he is loyal to David. Verse 9. Never, Jonathan says again, if I had the least inkling that my father was determined to harm you, wouldn't I tell you? He's willing to betray his dad to David. So Saul can't win. And so the scene is set and there's an elaborate plan that David's going to hide behind a rock and they're going to do the whole arrow thing. And 
But what this whole plan reveals is the extent of Saul's paranoia. You see, on one hand, Saul is, he reads the situation correctly. If his son has given up on the kingship, then his whole dynasty is dead in the water. There is no future beyond Saul if Jonathan's on side with David. Verse 30. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan and he said to him, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. Saul can see the situation, but we also see how deep his anger and determination is because he nearly kills his own son. Verse 32. Why should he be put to death? What what has he done? Jonathan asked his father. But Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him. Then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. Saul's this, this at once tragic and terrifying figure. He's pitiful, but he's also dangerous. He's like the injured animal. He can't win. God's already chosen his replacement, but rather than accept God's plan, rather than hand over the throne to the rightful successor, Saul is going to fight this all the way. Saul just looks utterly desperate. And so the chapter finishes with a tearful farewell, Jonathan weeping on David's shoulder, David weeping more, and Jonathan's heart is clearly with David. Saul may be determined, but there is no chance for him to win. God will win. When God's decided who will rule, when God's chosen his king, nothing will stop God's plan. Now that was really important for Israel to learn and remember because years later, God promised David that his son would always be ruling Israel. So um, chapter 7 of 2 Samuel Verse 16, God says to David, Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. God has chosen his king. He's made a promise to Israel. And so that promise stood throughout a long history of Israel with ups and downs. There was times when God's king, David's throne was really secure, but there was lots of times where it all just fell apart and nations came and attacked and eventually the northern kingdom was split off and it went into exile and then the southern kingdom was taken into exile and the nation is falling apart. But Israel had to remember that God had chosen his king and he would rule. And so they had songs like Psalm 2. Psalm 2 was this this song that Israel would sing to remember what God's plan was. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them. In his wrath, nations can fight God's kingdom. They can come and battle with Israel, but God will win. And so the Jews held on to that promise. They waited for God to keep his word. They waited for this this king, this Messiah, until along comes Jesus. And the kings of the earth did oppose Jesus. The the Roman rulers um, worked with the Jews to put Jesus to death. But they couldn't win. They killed him and three days later he was alive. 
And he told his followers, he stood on the mountain and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples of the nation and I will be with you. And so his, his followers are sent out with the confidence that God will win. And so you get the story of Acts. Acts is this constant journey of the, the messengers of Jesus go out and they talk about Jesus in places and they're opposed. There's townships, there's Jewish leadership, all sorts of people come and oppose the gospel, but you just can't stop it. It just keeps going out further and further. Eventually, Paul gets arrested and he's taken by Rome. He's taken to Rome, put under house arrest. But what does he say to the Christians in Philippi? As he's sitting there under house arrest, he writes to the Philippians and he says, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace garden to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident to the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Even the Roman Empire couldn't stop the gospel. God will win. Jesus is God's chosen king and he will reign. And that really should encourage us. Even if our governments oppose Jesus, even if your own family hates you because you've Jesus, he will win. Jesus will be king. So coming back to my introduction, that means secularism will not win. I know it doesn't feel like it. I know that's the narrative we hear is otherwise. But let me just give you some statistics that I think suggest that even now, the story isn't the one that we're hearing. So um, just a few stats. Uh, current projections are that in 2060, 40 years from now, Christianity will be the largest global belief system. So Christ the percentage of Christians in the world will increase from 31% to 32%. By comparison the number of atheists and agnostics will decrease just based on current statistics. This is a very human way of looking at the world. This is, not, this is just looking at basic current trends. 16 to 13%. I was actually amazed to read that in America, while 20% of people raised in Protestant churches eventually abandon it, 40% of people raised non-religious are becoming religious and usually Christian. And I have to say, that's actually my experience. I, I know that there's the baby boomer generation and often they can seem quite hard to the gospel, that they've been there, done that, they think they know what it's about and they've, they've dismissed it. But among younger people, uh, people who've grown up uh, with no knowledge of Jesus, among people from overseas who come here and they never encounter Jesus, it's amazing how many check him out and come to know him and to follow him. Uh, we've got our youth group at the moment currently has heaps of visiting kids, kids who are not from Christian families. And some of them are really grabbing hold of the gospel and they're coming to trust in Jesus. You can talk to the Kennedys after this. I can mention this briefly because uh, she's not here. But um, last week they invited a uh, girl from Germany who's an au pair to church. She came along. She'd seen the Mark drama the night before. And in the morning, she was just like really struck with who Jesus was. She came after the service. She was talking really interested and saying, this, this really is something I need to find out about. And like Simon texted me at lunchtime. I, I think she might even be converted. <laughs> God keeps doing this. 
Jesus will win. Um, let me just take a little... I'm going to do a little bit of philosophy stuff here. I hope those of you who zone out, feel free to zone out. But can I just suggest to you that secularism is actually in crisis? Secularism is in crisis. So there's two big flavours of secularism. One is capitalism. Uh, secular capitalism, um, it's, it's offering freedom. It, it, secularism is all about personal freedom, isn't it? The big goal of our society is to just be able to do whatever you want as an individual. Well, capitalism says you get that through hard work. You work hard, you earn the money, and you can break through any social structures. So there's no caste system. There's not lords and then the plebs. You just work hard, you earn your money, and you can have your place in society. That's the promise of secularism, uh, capitalism. But see, capitalism doesn't stop with class. The capitalism is just dissolving all the structures in society. So what we have is that people grow up no longer as part of families, finding their identity and sense of who they are in a community and a place, because you've got to go and you've got to move somewhere else to do your study, and then you move somewhere else to, to go and get your job. And so we just keep uprooting ourselves, and people lose their sense of identity. And so we've got a generation that are willing to buy identity through brands. Or construct an identity on Facebook because that's where my identity is rather than finding it in relationships. That's capitalism. That's one form of secularism. The other big one is socialism, um, which promised freedom through social engineering. We, we've just got to rethink our structures as a society, uh, get rid of all the inequalities, and it did some really good work of questioning, you know, feminism brought in all these questions about how women were being treated, racism was, was attacked... But what began as sort of a very um, careful dismantling of inequality has now become a bit of a carpet bombing process where you need to use politically correct speech in every situation. You, you, you don't dare use the pronoun he or she because it might offend someone. Um, you, you're afraid to talk about the legislation that's before the, uh, the government about abortion because you might offend someone. It's not the legal system that you become worried about. It's public lynching. It's what people will being hated on Facebook. And so again, the freedom we were promised has been lost. Now, if all that analysis makes you um, sort of zone out, here's my point. Saul couldn't win. Saul couldn't win. And yet Saul was so desperate to fight God's plan, he almost killed his own son. Today, secularism will not win. It might make a lot of noise. It might get very angry with Christianity. But don't believe the secular narrative. Despite appearances, secularism is not on the rise. God will win. And so we can trust Jesus. We can hold him as our king and know that God's plan will come to fruition. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please keep teaching us that you stand over everything and your king will win. Thank you that he has defeated sin and death on the cross and whatever happens in this world, he holds the reins. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we would be wise to keep living, trusting in him, owning his name, even if the current powers are angry with him. And we ask this and for wisdom to do it well, in Jesus' name. Amen. I might run through announcements now. That sounds a good, a good idea.
Um, yes, so just with announcements, the big one to remember is that this Friday is our Food for Thought dinner. So please do let us know you're coming.